Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author. And I'm also happy to say that he's my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Forrest. And as always, thanks for asking. It's not pro forma for you. Yeah. Which is really sweet, actually. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I'm a little tired today, to be perfectly honest. I had a little bit of a rough sleep night uh, last night. And then there's all this construction going on outside of my house right now where we're living. And it was kind of interfering with the recording initially. So we had to sort of figure that out. But it's calmed down a little bit. If you get a little background noise during this episode, it's probably because they're literally building a hotel across the street from me right now, (laughs) and I can't do anything about that one. So anyways, getting into today's episode, we're actually going to have some fun today, as you might be able to tell from our slightly lighter than normal open, and we're going to do something a little bit different. If you've spent much time, really, anywhere on the internet these days, you've probably run into videos or articles that have a title along the lines of five things this person can't live without, almost all of the time, these things are both very materialistic and actually pretty easy for somebody to live without, but you see them everywhere. (laughs) Like my latte foamer. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I don't have my latte foamer, I just can't travel without my latte foamer. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. My Rolex and my latte foamer, and then you really got it figured out. (laughs) So today we're going to be kind of taking that concept and applying it in maybe a slightly different context to ourselves. And Rick and I are going to be sharing some of the psychological strengths, the inner skills, the practices that we have that are particularly important to us, uh, the ones that we truly feel like we could not live without. But before we get into the episode, a couple of quick reminders. First, you can follow us everywhere on social media. Maybe let us know your things you couldn't live without. And I've linked our profiles in the description of today's episode. Second, if you'd rather be watching this episode right now, you can watch it on my YouTube channel. I've included a link to that as well. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can join us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, maybe even less than that, if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area like we do, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return, like transcripts, expanded show notes, and ad-free versions of the episodes. I think that a recent show notes that I did for the Judd Brewer episode came in around like 7,000 or 8,000 words. So that one was a bear. Um, So if you're interested (laughs) in learning about kind of the science behind the show, uh, it is a great vehicle to do that. So all that said, Dad, if you're okay with it, let's start with you. What's one thing that you feel like you truly couldn't live without? As you know, I have a lot of background kind of in wilderness, hiking, climbing, adventuring, journeying. And that metaphor of the journey is such a fundamental one, isn't it? The journey of a lifetime, the journey of a day, the journey around a particular issue, the journey of a relationship, there's that sense of it. And so the question is a lot along the way, what's in your backpack? What kind of supplies are you bringing along? I think we use that metaphor, actually, at the beginning of our book, Resilient, which, by the way, shout out to you, Forrest, is approaching 100,000 sold in English alone. (laughs) Good on you. So the point is, what do you take with you? And in the face of life's challenges, because life is often challenging, and there are long stretches often where the supplies coming in from the outside are a thin soup, 
Meanwhile, the world may well be banging on you hard. What do you have with you? It's, it's a very intimate and very cool kind of question. So mm. I love this basic question. That's kind of a little bit of my framing. First one for me, you're going to do five. I'm going to do five. Benevolence. What I mean by that, and I, when you asked me this question, I just looked inside and I kind of took the first answers that came to me from the depths intuitively. And the first one that popped up was this basic attitude that you're kind of for the good. It's really simple. It's not airy-fairy. You don't need to be a saint. It's just this basic stance that you want to help things be better rather than worse. Pretty simple. And in that, there's definitely a sense of relatedness with other people. You have a sense of your impact on non-human animals, the whole planet, on other people. You take that into account. Your movement is to construct rather than destruct, to build up rather than tear down. Um, it's kind of a basic orientation to other people that you know includes a sort of sense of compassion, a willingness to see the good. You're not a chump. You're not a fool. There's just a kind of benevolence. And it's interesting to think of this benevolence. It's like a Wi-Fi base station sort of radiating non-referentially in all directions. And then others move through the field. And you recognize mm -hmm. who's moving through the field. And there's some people are moving through your field of benevolence you need to be careful about. You wouldn't want to go into business with them. You wouldn't want to walk down a dark alley where they're located. All right. But your benevolence is still non-conditional, unconditional. It's not contingent on various things. So you have that kind of attitude of kind of basic positive regard. Carl Rogers, one of the great heroes of humanistic psychology in the mid-20th century, talked about unconditional positive regard for others. A basic stance. A teacher of mine once called it a blessing disposition. Mm. So that's my first one, mm. benevolence. That's really lovely, Dad. Yeah, I know. I think that it's a great place to start because it's sort of the foundation for so much of what we talk about on the podcast broadly. And for me, what comes to mind is thinking of it as this very broad term. We often think about benevolence as being kind of directed from us toward other people, mm. like be nice to others, meta for all beings, however you want to kind of frame it. But I think that we can have that same stance of benevolence toward ourselves, right? Like right. getting on our own side, Very being good. kind to ourselves, self-compassion, you know, all of that. You dog, bringing that in. Yeah. <laughs> there you go again. Because <laughs> I know, right? Bring, bringing it back to like the same five points I make 700 times on the podcast. <laughs> But, you know, I just I just can't help myself. I have to play the hits. <laughs> Go with your strengths. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Just lead in. So anyways, I, I just think that one of the big fundamental questions that we kind of have to ask as we move through our life is, are we sort of playing by the golden rule? Are we doing mm -hmm. unto others as we would have them do unto us? And then alongside that, are we doing to ourselves the same things that we are doing to other people? And I think that we can create kind of inequities going both ways, right? Mm. I mean, some people are highly self-centered and they're just not very nice to other people. Some people are not very nice to other people because they have their own deep wounding and that's manifesting in their external relationships. Okay, that's all totally fair. But a lot of the time, many people, I think particularly people who have like a little bit of an interest in their own personal development, maybe the people who listen to this podcast, are in general like pretty good to other humans. They're, they're not out there deliberately trying to be a dick to other people, but they often struggle to be kind to themselves. Mm. And that's something that we've really been exploring kind of more recently in the episodes. And I just think it's a really important point to kind of name here. Yeah, very true. Excellent. What about one of you? 
What's in yours? What are five things you can't live without? Start with one. Yeah. Yeah. So the first one that comes to mind for me um, is actually patience, which includes... I'm laughing hysterically here, Forrest, and your mom is too, (laughs) when we think about you as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not necessarily my uh, strong suit as a as a child. I think it's probably fair to say. So maybe that's why I've leaned into it more as life has gone on. Uh, there's some developmental curve that you can kind of see there. But um, yeah, and for me, like a lot falls in under this mm. industry, diligence, determination, goals, planning, whatever. Like you can kind of lump all of that underneath this key virtue of patience. The idea that, like, just think of anything that you've accomplished in your life. More often than not, it was an accumulation of 10,000 small steps that built up over a long period of time and eventually got you where you wanted to go. There's a line, it's something along the lines of it takes years to be an overnight success. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I just think that that is so deeply true, and it's true not just of our external accomplishments, but also on our personal journeys of development of the self, right? The many little events that occurred in childhood and our early years that laid the foundation for the person we later became, all of the things we're doing out in the world these days that are increasingly developing that kind of like strong core inside of ourselves— all of that, it's just the accumulation of many, many, many little things. And so for me, patience is just such a key virtue here. It's the delay of gratification. Yeah. And being okay, meanwhile, in my long slog toward licensure, and and your partner, Elizabeth, is on a similar kind of long slog now. Yep. I had a psychologist who was my supervisor for close to six years as I was accumulating my hours toward the 3,000 I needed. And he said a number of really useful things along the way. And Joel Crone, by the way, I learned a lot from him. Anyway, he said that for him, the most important word in the English language was meanwhile. Mm. Meanwhile. And we live in such an immediate gratification society, right? If it takes more than two or three seconds for a call to be placed, it's like we start tapping our feet or you're you're on a website and it takes three seconds for it to load and it seems forever. And yet so much of life is about meanwhile and delaying perhaps forever the super duper gratification we might want. Wait, mm. we have to wait. And it kind of reminds me also of this line or section in the book Siddhartha from Herman Hesse, which is loosely modeled in the Buddha. And there's a really cool movie actually about that as well, probably made in the 70s with some beautiful photography. Essentially, there's this moment where young Siddhartha, prototype of the Buddha, comes out of the forest. He's been an ascetic meditator. He's nearly starved to death. Didn't really work for him. He said, you know, this isn't working. I need to check out the ordinary world of regular life, sensual pleasure, householder living, and so on. Therefore, I need a job. So he approaches this big burly grain merchant who's a working guy in India 2,500 years ago and wants a job. And the grain merchant starts asking him, well, can you lift heavy loads? Uh, No. Can you recognize the difference between this quality of rice and that quality of rice? Uh, No. So he goes through a whole bunch of things. But the merchant can tell, this is something kind of special about this kid. So he's going to keep asking him. Finally, he says, okay, okay, what can you do? What can you do? And Siddhartha pauses and reflects. He says, well... I can fast. All right. Good on you. I can think. And I can wait. 
I can wait as a major psycho-spiritual virtue. Really cool. So I want to throw the ball back to you, Forrest. What has helped you learn to wait? Wow. What an interesting question. I'm going to take this in an actually kind of interesting direction, but it just it's what popped into my head. So just yeah. kind of follow along with me here, I guess. I think two things. The first thing is actual satisfaction. And I think the second thing is the perception of satisfaction. Here's what I mean. I think that when you're in a place of scarcity, whether it's actual true scarcity out in your life or it is the experience of scarcity inside of yourself, and I want to distinguish between those two for a moment here, it's very, very hard to be patient. Mm, yeah, I go immediately to kind of the monkey mind, the, the needs that we all have inside of ourselves, the cravings that emerge in life. And so many of those cravings, I mean, all of them, if you really want to go to bottom here, are in many ways an injury of satisfaction. We're not getting something that we want to be getting, and it's creating kind of a hole inside of ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes it's kind of easy to lose sight of the fact that I've had opportunities in my life to be patient that other people haven't had due to the fact that I've had my needs fundamentally met. And I've had my needs met by a lot of different things, by circumstance, by being a, you know, as we've, it's a phrase I've said like, again, a thousand times on the podcast, an upper middle class white male, like put, gives you a lot of, lot of advantages, just kind of going into it in terms of satisfaction, kind of getting your needs met in a lot of different ways. So I think that it would be really easy for me to say to a lot of people like, oh, just be more patient. But the causes and conditions in their life for patients are not well set up for it. Yeah, really important. Yeah, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, it's very, very challenging to be patient. Sure. If you've been mistreated, if mm -hmm. you're the, dealing with centuries of prejudice and injustice, yeah. you know, you're done waiting. Yeah. And it's really important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that it's good to like start by acknowledging that. For sure. And then on that foundation of having done the due diligence of like really appreciating that in a very deep and felt way, we can then kind of turn toward like, okay, and also what can we do inside of ourselves to cultivate that experience of satisfaction? particularly maybe around our psychological needs. And I think that for a long time, I had a lot of psychological cravings. I had like a real craving to be seen by other people in a certain kind of way, to be seen as a certain kind of person. Mm. And those cravings really created an urgency that was probably not like tremendously healthy, to be perfectly honest, that really made it hard to be patient, that mm. made it easy to be kind of grasping and insistent in the different relationships I had, whether those were personal or professional ones. And as I've increasingly like built up those psychological strengths, that, that feeling of enoughness inside of myself, the idea that I am enough, that I'm doing things that are enough out in the world, it's become a lot easier to relax and lighten mm -hmm. up. And I think that like relaxation is also a part of patience. There's this idea of like, you know, when we're contracted, there's this kind of speed, right? We were just talking with Judd about this, this difference between contraction and expansion in a recent interview that we did. And patience to me has this quality of expansion to it. Mm. And that's, I think, one of the best ways that I can articulate it. So when we feel that satisfaction inside of ourselves, whether it's actual satisfaction, truly meeting our external needs, or it's more the psychological component of satisfaction, I think it just gets so much easier to be patient. Mm. Enough already. Yeah, enough already. Right, yeah, enoughness already. 
Yeah. A sense of that. Yeah, we talk about that. Contentment already, mm-hmm. okayness already, in the present, in the present. Yeah. That's beautiful for us. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot there. No, I mean, thanks for asking the question. I thought it was a phenomenal question. And that was such a deep answer. Wow. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, no, honestly, really appreciate that. And, you know, thanks for giving me the opportunity to think about it because I don't know if I'd really reflected on that in quite that way before. So it was very, very cool. Mm. And also, it's a good preview of something I'm going to talk about for my next one. But before we get to that, what's yours, Dad? What's your second one that's particularly important to you? The second one that came up for me when I did this kind of fresh look, which is such a lovely way to do it. It's like, ah, it reminds me somehow of the I Ching, the Chinese teaching book, tremendous wisdom in it that can be used as a kind of guide, uh, kind of an oracle, as it were. And people who know it, you basically establish a question and then you use, whether it's sticks or coins, you essentially build a hexagram in three steps that can become a second hexagram sometimes. And the crux is you have to ask a question. You have to name your question. Mm, mm -hmm. What's the question? You begin with this question, right? And just the question itself is really heuristic. You know, it's generative. So like, what are the five things I can't live without? It's not like there's a right answer. It's just that it's a good question. My next one, curiosity. That's the second one that popped up. And by curiosity, I mean the wanting to know what's true. Simple as that. Curiosity about other people. What's it like to be you? Curiosity about reality, physical reality, drawing one into science. What's going on, right? And so on the road to find out, curiosity involves a kind of inquiry and it helps to be willing to not know, to be willing to step away from all the things you think are true and to be willing to learn, to be willing to have your priors updated, to use the language of Bayes' theorem and Nate Silver, uh, (laughs) updating your priors about what you think is actually true. A willingness also to bring a kind of curiosity to your own experience. What are the causes and effects? Oh, I'm irritated right now. What led to that? Let me rewind the last 10 seconds or 10 minutes of the movie of my mind to see if I can detect the causes of this present moment of irritation in what's happened before. Oh, what's what's going on? What's going on in my deeper layers, my younger layers? You know, the semi-conscious in the shadows layers, curiosity. I think alongside that, again, to give kind of like the reflection of it, there's this kind of natural pushing back and curiosity around what isn't true. Being curious, like you were saying about, you know, the the structures in the mind mm. that aren't being honest with us yeah. for whatever reason and kind of investigating what the source of that dishonesty might be. Mm. and And being really questioning about the nature of our experience, the mm. nature of reality, you know, yeah. like what is a self really to investigate one of the questions that we've asked on this podcast a lot. What are my emotions, really? What's the true root of them? And I think that that curious inquiry is such a foundational piece of of Buddhist practice, for starters, which you've engaged in seriously for a very long time, because we're constantly asking those questions of the mind, of reality, you know, vipassana meditation, insight-based meditation, inquiry into the nature of reality. So I do think it's just very fundamental for, for you and for your practices in general. Well, that's sweet for us that you nailed that. And curiosity 
certainly about the nature of reality and also very immediately the nature of all experiences. Mm -hmm. What is the nature of a sensation that it shares with the nature of a plan or a thought or an emotion? And we can look more and more deeply. We realize that, oh, wow, all experiences have the same nature. They're made of parts that are connected and changing. Wow. And therefore, they don't have inherently the kind of solidity that we tend to attribute to them reflexively in the automaticity of the mind. And that's a very deep kind of inquiry that's available to people routinely. Sorry to jump right in there, but... No, I thought that was great. Yeah, about the value of teachings, just about don't know, not so sure. And there's mm. a kind of a Zen mm. saying, maybe so. I like that. <laughs> you know, there you are. You're thinking something really intensely. Usually I'm right and you're wrong. Okay, I know yeah. what that one's like. Yeah. And then just to have this little whisper, this kind of friendly, neutral, benevolent, curious whispering in the back of your mind. Maybe so. It could be true. It really could be true. Yeah, gravity is, is real. Yeah, like maybe so. And yeah, definitely so. <laughs> but some of the things we think are so true. Not so true, or it's more complicated than that. Okay, Forrest, how about you? What's the second one for you? So this one just goes right hand in hand with patience. I'm clearly playing with a theme here for my first two. And it's self-regulation, which doesn't necessarily sound like the sexiest virtue. <laughs> oh my God, your mom <laughs> would be twirling in the air right now. She'd be like, oh my God, who is this person? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, we, we all go through our personal journeys <laughs> and they have many different stops on them. And uh, some of them you can't you can't see the end of when you start at the beginning. You know, it's obscured in fog. Then the fog parts. Here we are. That's right. That's right. That's right. But okay, self regulation. And my friends would also be laughing, but they would be laughing for a different reason, which is that like it's so funny that there's this difference, right? I, I think that a lot of my friends have this conception of me where I'm just this extremely regulated person. <laughs> but whereas, of course, you guys have the the eight-year-old still running around, you oh, know, yeah. whatever. Um, <laughs> not the most regulated individual that's that's ever existed. But okay, anyways, so this just gets back to another one of like Forrest's greatest hits basically over here, which is just that idea of the space between when something happens to you huh. and then what you choose to do about it. Yeah. And I think that this is probably the most important skill that we have in relationship with other people outside of just like being a basically good human being. Um, beyond that, I think the ability to regulate our impulses is like the most effective tool that we have mm. for interpersonal relationship. Just think about every single time that you got into some argument with somebody else and you just kind of said something and you weren't really thinking about it, or maybe it wasn't even an argument. It was just like a normal conversation and you just say something. And like half a second later, you just go, why did you do that? I mean, that's happened to everybody, right? And, yeah. and that's, a, that's a fault of self-regulation. You didn't slow down enough to catch the impulse before it came out of your mouth. There's this famous piece of research that if you're listening to the podcast, you're probably familiar with. It's the marshmallow test. We actually had Angela Duckworth in our very first expert interview ever on the podcast on, and we talked about it a little bit. And there's since been like a little bit of a reevaluation of it. It probably didn't show what we kind of thought it did initially. But the basic idea, the general principle that being able to regulate our impulses is a good thing. 
still kind of holds with it. And it's a very, very fundamental piece of research in the kind of history of social psychology. And the impulses to regulate aren't just social ones. Like every addiction, if you think about it, is essentially a lack of self-regulation or maybe a lack of priority, if you want to kind of put it that way. And I just think that the better that we're able to regulate our impulses out in the world, almost always the happier, healthier, more successful we're going to be. Wow, this one's a good one. So I actually had dinner one evening at a conference with Professor Dr. Walter Michel, Mm. who Mm -hmm. did the marshmallow research. And he was just a wonderful, bright, scholarly, twinkly-eyed kind of person who I would have to say, I'm like some academics, the more they know, the more uptight they get. He just kind of radiated a maybe so twinkle about him. So that said, totally. And one of the things that's really striking about the research is that to the extent that there is some kind of meaningful difference or variation among four-year-olds in how well they can delay gratification. Mm -hmm. And then if there's a relationship between how well they could delay gratification when they were four and outcomes when they're 24, let's say, or let's just fast forward to people who are 24, how well can they delay gratification and then relate that to outcomes? I think the findings are pretty robust that generally speaking, that capacity to regulate yourself to delay gratification can be very useful in a lot of circumstances. As you know, and as you were implying there, the question then becomes, what confers that ability in four-year-old kids? What are the basis of it? And when you deconstruct that, you find that there's typically a combination of three factors, environment, which includes social class, and then personal biological temperament, and then upbringing. And people probably in the beginning over-attributed causes to the innate constitution of the kid. Some kids just had to eat the marshmallows and some kids could delay the marshmallows and they're going to be you know, super successful 40 years from now. That was kind of overdone. And a lot of parenting can really help you know, kids delay gratification. All that said, I also want to add, and this goes to a question for you. Sometimes one of the wonderful qualities in the kids who temperamentally were more spirited, more on the so-called ADHD end of the spectrum, let's say, who just could not wait for the second marshmallow. They needed the marshmallow now. It was right in front of them. Okay, kids like that and people like that have a huge contribution to make to the tribe, to the group, to the band, to the country, to the world. And I think it's really important to honor that, okay, maybe with that difficulty with impulse control, delaying gratification, comes other gifts for people who are of that sort of person. And for people like me, I could stare at that marshmallow for hours, Forrest, if I knew I was going to get more. You know, I would not pull my hand out of the gomja bar. I'm that kind of person mm-hmm. on the one hand. On yeah. the other hand, man, you can be self-controlled and self-regulated and determined to a fault, you know, as I have been definitely in my life. So calling mm-hmm. that out. So now I want to ask you a question with this preamble yeah. here. Here we go. Uh, thanks for being my my willing victim. <laughs> Ambush therapy from your father, live on the radio. No, it's, it's, it's great, yeah. I, I didn't realize we were going this direction for the episode, but here we are. Well, it just occurs to me, it's really cool. So what helps us 
take off the brakes when it's appropriate to dysregulate ourselves, mm, mm-hmm. to let go of regulation. And one of my theories about that that you might speak to is that by knowing at the end of the day, whenever we want, we can apply self-regulation, actually mm. frees us up to being looser and more wide open in life yeah. in general. So I kind of wondered totally. if you could speak to that. Uh, because you do some things that are pretty dysregulated, you know, dancing in yeah, certain kinds of sure, ways, totally. very adventuresome, you know, did being kind of relatively self-controlled mm-hmm. help you be uncontrolled? Well, I, I think that for me, there's been a real rubber banding where if you look at videos of me as a five-year-old, I, I think that I was regulated in some ways, but I was certainly not regulated in like my expression of joy and intrigue with the wider world. Yeah. I was very expressive and interested and just wanted to go and run around and play and all yeah, that. That's right. And, you know, then the world happens and one thing led to another and I became a very, I would say, overly regulated, overly controlled, very mechanistic, very there is a right way to do things. And if you just do it the right way, people won't punish you. And that became my story from probably about age 12 until about age 22, 23, where some of these structures, then I started investigating them and going, huh, is this really the way that I want to be in the world? So I think that there's like a natural course in a person's life between regulation and and openness, if you want to kind of put it that way, openness to experience maybe. And for some people who are extremely regulated, going to the movies is like this big adventure or taking these very, very small bids is this like very dangerous interpersonal experience. And then on the other hand, for somebody who's very on that more spirited end of the spectrum, just very little things could be like huge displays of regulation. So I I just say that to highlight that some of this is based on individual temperament, as you were saying. And I'm applying this to myself, but I think that if we tried to generalize it to people, I think that most people could probably be benefited by finding some spaces to be a little bit more regulated, but there are probably some people who wouldn't be. And the, the adventure for them is in finding ways to be more open to experience and to let loose the brakes and all of that. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it just comes down to like trusting yourself a little bit here. Mm. And particularly if you are, as I am, on that like more regulated end of the spectrum these days, just really kind of trusting yourself that you're not going to put yourself in a position to really get hurt if yeah. you're that person. You know, what feels like a big bid for you is probably not that big a deal for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just knowing that if you have to, you've got good breaks. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, I think that you said it right at the beginning, to be honest, that idea that if you've cultivated these skills, Mm -hmm. you get to choose where to apply them. Yeah. And that's the whole point, right? You cultivate the skill and then you can make an active choice about where you want to put it in your life. So, okay, I think that that's enough on self-regulation. And thankfully from here, we're mostly going to be moving into, like you were saying, on the more openness side of the spectrum. So maybe uh, to that benefit, Dad, what's your next one? The third one that came up, after benevolence and curiosity, and curiosity including really paying respects at the altar of reality. Fundamentally, reality is is the ultimate altar. The third one for me was grit, by which I mean this place inside, like that grain of sand that you cannot grind down, Mm. you know, the diamond dust, something that 
core inside us that's undefeatable. It may be tired. There may be a lot of fatigue around it. There may be worry. There might be despair, pain, emotional shock, deep hurt. But somewhere deep down inside is a place that says, I'm still going to keep doing the best I can. I'm still going to keep trying. And maybe I need to take a break in the service of trying. But it's in this framework of using a phrase you're familiar with, internal locus of control. The Mm -hmm. idea that, yes, I am buffeted by life. There are real hurricanes. There is real injustice. There is There are bad things coming at us. There are plagues. There's bad weather. <laughs> There's bad internet. Okay, it's all coming at you. Inside yourself, though, there's this origin point that continually radiates action and a kind of scruffy, undefeatable moxie. And getting in touch with that is really, really useful. I think there is that core of grit in every single person. It's Mm. indestructible, truly. I I think a lot of people have doubt about it. They don't trust that when the chips are really down, they'll be able to find that gritty core. Sometimes it helps to go through experiences that are challenging deliberately or just inadvertently you get thrown into them in which it's revealed to you that, yes, you really do have that gritty core. Mm. When everything falls apart, mm, there's still that moxie within you. So it's good to know that, and it's good to have a feeling of it. What does it feel like to have that grit inside? Mm. Just to know that about yourself. It's the foundation of resilience. It's the essence of self-reliance. And from that gritty core, kind of radiates out, what would help me? What's on my side, right? And then that's the inquiry. Then you start looking for answers to that question. I go to... Of course, you know, for starters, the book that we wrote together that you already named, Resilient. And I do think that it is in some ways, even though it was, I think, the fourth or fifth strength that we had in the book, it is kind of the most fundamental one. Because Mm -hmm. if you are not on your own side, you know, if you are not ultimately there to kind of persevere through the things that life throws at you, nobody's going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. And we, of course, we have friends, we have allies, we have people that support us on our long journey. But fundamentally, you know, everyone's on their own side at the end of the day. And we need to kind of cultivate that for ourselves the same way that we offer it to other people. And I, and I kind of want to ask you about this, Dad. And I, this could be its own whole episode that we should probably do now that I actually think about it. But if you are somebody who, let's say, is, you know, a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more vulnerable, we use the phrase sometimes distress tolerance, which is a bit of a complex phrase in terms of the associations with it. But if you're somebody who struggles with distress tolerance, are there things that you've seen people do that have really helped them build up more of that sense of grit or perseverance? It's a beautiful question, and it's really important Mm -hmm. because, of course, when you're exhausted, you want to give up. And it's important to be compassionate with yourself about that and to recognize that it, it arises, this goes to curiosity, it arises lawfully, Mm. dependently, the sense of exhausted defeat. I give up, right? It's there for a reason based on all these factors, including just your own perhaps biological temperament you were born with or the biology you've acquired based on all Mm. kinds of things, ranging from parasite infections to trauma to 
you know, illness and so forth. So first thing is to really bring us a kindness to yourself about this. Second, see if you can find inside yourself what is deeper than or more central than the pain, the exhaustion, the weariness, the sense of having, you know, life kicking you in the teeth. Inside yourself, you will find this space of knowing, of a kind of freedom of what you know, of what you see and what you intend. And it's, it's like an innermost temple mm-hmm. that could feel almost infinitesimally small, and yet it is always there. And then you, you're in this innermost kind of temple inside yourself, or whatever language you want to use, this sanctuary, a sanctuary, a refuge inside yourself. And in that refuge, you recognize, you tune into what you see and what you intend. And that seeing and intending, intending based on what you see, right there, right there, you are in touch with the essence of your own grit, right there. Mm -hmm. Even if around the edges, you're tired, you're depressed, you're sick, you're hurt, you're so sad that they're not helping you, still in this innermost refuge, you can find that sense of your own seeing and your own intending. And then everything starts radiating out from there. You start taking steps out from there and you come back to it. And I think to finish, it's okay to, like obviously you you speak of our advantages and of different kinds or good fortune. And this is where I think it's helpful to turn to people who've been mistreated terribly or they've they truly are at the effect of all kinds of things. And still, these are people who even in these situations find this fundamental refuge of, you know, clear seeing and clear intending inside themselves. And so if they can do it, wow, I feel humbled by people like that. Mm -hmm. Man, Mm -hmm. they can do it. I can do it too with the relatively trivial difficulties, you know, that I face in my own life. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a great that's a great framing of it and a great practice also for people to get get in touch with. I, I think that for me, I do do a lot of appreciation of the ways in which others have faced far more complex and challenging challenges than the mm, ones that I yeah. that I do. I, I also think that there's a place for appreciating your own triumphs in life mm. and reflecting on previous times where you did truly overcome something because I think that it's really easy to look back over the course of life and go, well, you know, did I really, did I really have to overcome something? Or did I, uh, you know, I, I, I did these things, but I just didn't really actually do these other things because we have that, that negativity bias, that self-critical mode of the mind where it gets very easy for us to remember the 10,000 things we didn't do or the 10,000 things that we could have done differently rather than the 10,000 things that we did pretty darn well. Or, you know, the many little successes that we got through over a particularly difficult time in our lives. And so for me, I go to the ways in which I did make it through challenging experiences and the ways in which I did move my mind toward better modes of being and thinking over time, which is itself, you know, a very hard form of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, even if these things aren't these enormous challenges that people face, there's still a place for appreciating them. Yeah. And for kind of giving them credit on their own merit and using that as a real resource inside of yourself to go, you know what? I faced that and I can deal with this too. Fantastic. 
So as we often do, we've started running a little bit long here, and I actually think that this is a really good place to bring this particular episode to a close. So this is gonna be the first of two episodes that we're gonna do focused on this topic of the things that we can't live without. Then next week, we'll explore the next group of five things that Rick and I can't live without. So today we talked about benevolence, patience, curiosity, self-regulation, and grit. Rick shared three of his, and I shared two of mine. I loved having this conversation. I really enjoyed the structure of it, and I just thought that there was so much here that we were able to get into. So we started with benevolence, which Rick extended mostly out into the world. This idea of having a blessing disposition and a fundamentally positive orientation toward other people. Are you trying to build people up or are you trying to tear them down? Are you oriented toward constructing more new positive things or are you oriented toward negativity fundamentally? Tied to that, I brought in the idea of blessing ourselves the same way that we bless other people and extending that benevolence back toward us. While, of course, there are some people who are very full of themselves, very attached to their own well-being, and extremely dismissive of other people, my suspicion is that most of the people who listen to a podcast like ours are generally pretty well-behaved out in the world. Maybe that's just me giving everyone the benefit of the doubt, but hey, it's what I would like to believe. And I suspect that for most people who are listening, there are a lot of challenges around self-kindness and around extending to ourselves the same things that we extend toward other people. So just as we have benevolence for the outside world, can we extend that benevolence to ourselves? Then I talked about the importance of patience, the journey of 10,000 steps. Can we be diligent? Can we wait? Can we pursue long-term goals, both big picture in our lives broadly, and also in the moment and in our interactions with other people? Can we look at a situation with another person and go, you know what here, it's just not worth it to maybe win the battle, but lose the war. Then Rick named curiosity, which I really, really loved here. And particularly this component of curiosity, that's about identifying what's really true. What's actually true out in the world or inside yourself? There are all of these assumptions that we make about ourselves, about other people, about the way that the world works. But which of those are actually real? And which of those are just stories that we've been told over and over again that we haven't really deeply investigated ourselves? Alongside that, maybe this real feeling of being interested, being earnestly interested in other people and in the world. I think that we can normally tell when somebody's listening to us because they're fulfilling an obligation versus listening to us because they are truly interested in what it is that we're saying. Then I talked about self-regulation, which goes hand in hand with patience. Are we able to control our impulses? Can we catch ourselves before the words fly out of our mouth that we will later regret? And then extending this more generally, most addictions come back to a lack of self-regulation or maybe bad priorities that lead us to have a lack of self-regulation. We then talked for a little while about my own journeys with uh, self-regulation, being maybe an excessively regulated person when I was a bit younger, and then really allowing that to give me the confidence that if I wanted to, I could apply the brake. But that means that you can be a little bit more liberal with the gas when appropriate. 
And I think that that is a wonderful freedom that self-regulation can give us as well. Finally, Rick talked about grit, the undefeatable core that lives inside of all of us. The single grain of sand, even if it is just one grain, that will not be worn down by the world. Related to that, he named this idea of having an internal locus of control, essentially agency, which we talk about all the time on the podcast, a commitment to doing what you can alongside all of the things that you understand, yep, can't do anything about that. When we have grit, we're committed to our own well-being. We're committed to growing the strengths inside of us that give us more that we take with us on the long road of life. It's very hard to get on your own side without having a bit of grit. So that's it for today's episode of the podcast, which explored the first five of 10 things that Rick and I truly feel that we can't live without. And we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know the things that you feel like you truly couldn't live without. So feel free to email us. It's contact at beingwellpodcast.com, or you can follow us on social media and reach out to us there. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a variety of bonuses in return, like expanded show notes, ad-free versions of the episodes, and transcripts of everything that we produce. Finally, the best way you could help us out, tell a friend about the podcast. It is the absolute best way for us to reach more people. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.